you've met guides to some pretty unusual places well off the beaten path here on Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we get the inside scoop on what it's like aboard the International Space Station with astronaut Katie Coleman. From starting her travels as a high school exchange student in Norway, Katie eventually became an Air Force lieutenant and a mission specialist on the space shuttle Columbia. Katie has also lived weightless for nearly half a year while conducting experiments on the International Space Station. She joins us today from the studios of Johnson Space Center in Houston to share what it's like to live and work in outer space. Katie, thanks for joining us. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I was laughing because my uh, my mom used to tease me that at last I had a job in a place that I'd been actually a lot of my life already. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm just really curious about what it must be like. You know, this is a travel show. If you could be like my tour guide, let's pretend it's 100 years from now and people are actually going uh, and having the experience that you have as part of your work. Uh, I'm on my first uh, space flight. Uh, get me oriented. Uh, what's it like living up there? What am I going to pack? What do I see out the window? Well, I would say first you have to decide how you want to go. You know, in a way, do you want to take the bus or the train or were you going to walk? We actually have different ways to go to space. We've been going for a long time in the space shuttle, but now that we've retired that, we are doing two things. One is going up and down with the Russians. So I actually launched from Kazakhstan on a Soyuz rocket with uh, one Russian and one Italian. And then we are also building a new capsule, which will go not only to the space station, but also back to the moon and to Mars and in places that are outside low Earth orbit. And I'd like to think that someday people will just be able to pick which way they'd like to go because we'll have even more. So that part of it is pretty exciting. So it's like, you know, you can get a year rail pass that covers Scandinavia or one that doesn't. You've got the lower Earth orbit, or you could opt for the moon. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting how you're going to go. It's so fun to think of this in terms of travel. Before we had the shuttle. That's one vehicle that goes up, comes down, and use it again. Now we don't have that. We go up and down with the Russians. Do they have the pre-shuttle sort of notion of sending a, a craft up there, or do they have a shuttle also? The Soyuz is a pretty different beast than the shuttle in that it's very small. This is like the, the VW bug okay. compared to so the large car. tour bus. <laughs> the smart car. It is a smart car. It is, it's very tiny. I mean, it is, it is three people sitting shoulder to shoulder wow. together, a very tiny thing. I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is it only actually takes eight and a half minutes to get into space Amazing. as we define it. I can see you going up in this little Russian smart car, but how do you come down from the space station? Well, we come down in the same little smart car. We have spacecraft that bring us up there and then come back but don't get reused, and that's the ones that we're using right now. But we have plans to be making ones that can oh, be reused so as our NASA, yeah, exactly. How, our NASA space shuttle was reusable. How can they bring you down and not be able to be reused again? Does it crash into the sea? No, but it crashes on Earth, and it's supposed to. It's, it's kind of a wild thing. So it comes down with it with a parachute, and it's bam, it got you down safely, but they're not going to uh, fix the bumpers. It's actually more a question of, you know, we're sort of joking around about space travel here, but it's it's really a, a pretty serious thing. And when mm -hmm. you're going to put people inside, I mean, no matter what, it's going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you put people inside. And you really want to know with a certain certainty that everything is as right, right as you could okay. make it, even though there's some research involved. And mm -hmm. basically, once it's had that impact, we're, we're not going to use that physical 
yeah. capsule again. Yeah. Yeah. But we do actually reuse a lot of the parts on the inside, all the, the radios and the computers and the screens okay. and that kind of hardware. I see. That makes sense to me then. You go into Kazakhstan. If I went to Kazakhstan, I'd be worried about, will the handle fall off of the toilet when I flush it? Do you, do you, get, <laughs> do you get a sense that, do you, do you feel competence like in Houston? Absolutely. At the Baikonur Cosmodrome, I mean, this is a place that they have been launching people into low Earth orbit for right. more than 50 years. And it's interesting because it's in the middle of the desert, you know, so in the morning I would go out running and I would see camels. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one image that I that I have in, in markets where you can buy all sorts of neat mm-hmm. exotic things and they specialize <laughs> in cool knives. And then in the afternoon, I could go and do a fit check in the rocket that I'm going to take to space three days later. I love it. And Russia, of course, has had some problems lately, but they've maintained a, a priority for funding and, and researching and, and making a first-class uh, space program. Well, the International Space Station is this absolutely amazing endeavor because this is 16 different countries all joined together, flying one vehicle together. And you can look at kind of the crew, which is six of us, usually three Russians and three what we call the United States operating segment, which is actually made up of Canada and Japan and about 15 countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. So there's six of us all together. That's one international venture is the folks that you are camping, so to speak, with. Mm -hmm. But then on the ground, there are hundreds of people that are working together every single day, you know, deciding hard questions together Mm -hmm. and having to establish relationships together. And I think that's really a neat, neat part of the, the whole endeavor. And Katie, is, is that an international sort of group there on the ground? Is there, is there a sort of an international esprit de corps or is that primarily Russian? It's a totally international endeavor in that the space station itself is divided kind of, you know, in half, so to speak. We don't need a passport to go from one side to the other. But in general, I'd say our work is a little bit divided. The Russians mm-hmm. tend to do work on Russian experiments. But then the U.S. and the Europeans, the Canadians, the Japanese... We all are working together on a joint set of experiments. And so I, as an American, would be working on any number of different kinds of experiments from different countries. And that means that on the ground, there are folks that are talking together and making sure that when I get a set of directions about how to put something together or operate it, that it makes sense to me. Do you get a sense that it's a force for peace just to have an excuse to work together on something bigger than, you know, petty border disputes? It gives me a lot of faith in people themselves. I know that after being up there and looking down at the earth, it's not that I'm not patriotic, but I I felt a little sort of, you know, just to to think that I should put an American flag on my shoulder or or think of myself as from one place, it just felt so limited when we're Mm -hmm. really all from the same place. Well, sooner or later, we've got to figure that out, you know. (laughs) I mean, we can be proud of our country, but we're on this planet together, and that's Maybe that's one of the great byproducts of the space program up until now is just the recognition that we are a community on this planet. Individual people still build those bridges, Mm -hmm. help, you know, the sort of the big bosses to trust each other. It's down Mm -hmm. at sort of my level when two people just look at each other and say, let's get this to work, even though everybody doesn't understand each other yet. And I think that that happens when you do regular travel as well. You know, in some other country, who you are is going to represent many, many Americans to the people there. That's sort of a fundamental to thoughtful travel as far as we're concerned. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Katie Coleman, and Katie's an astronaut, and she's coming to us from Houston. 
we're talking again about fantasizing about traveling and so on. And if you were my, my coach for a trip, and you have to do this every time you go up, what are packing tips? How, how do you pack? Just I'm talking personal stuff for a space trip. How would that be different than just going on a, on a cruise? The biggest difference is that so much of it happens so long before you go. The good news is you don't bring that much with you. So there's not that many (laughs) decisions to make. I mean, for example, you know, it's about six pairs of pants and 12 shirts for six Mm. months. Okay. For for the sort of nice shirts, then we have a lot of gym clothes and things that we wear for working out. So all that stuff gets decided, even I would say about a year ahead of time. And then it's kind of a nice surprise when you get up on orbit and there it is, because it's going to come up probably not in your uh, Soyuz, oh, your ship that ahead. you go up in. I get it. It's sent ahead. It is. It is. And then you've got some living space once you get up there. That's true. And even actually on the way up, that little, you know, smart car or VW bug-sized vehicle is actually attached to another one about the same size. They're mm-hmm. like in a little train there. And that actually gives you a lot of living room for that time, everything from a few hours to a couple days that you Mm -hmm. might be in orbit around the Earth Mm -hmm. by yourselves Mm -hmm. before you dock with the space station, which for me was a very special time to be in such a small spaceship, just three of us orbiting Mm. the Earth. Wow. You're a musician and a beautiful flute player, and I saw the uh, YouTube video of you and Ian Anderson (laughs) from Jethro Tull playing. I was so inspired by that. You have that opportunity to share your passions. You got a little wiggle room up there to be who you are and not just some sort of perfect, groomed, well-trained astronaut, but Katie the flute player. (laughs) Yeah, we do have to throw the perfect grooming out of there if you saw the space hair. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought your hair is kind of nice going there like some sort of fancy statue with no, no gravity. My, my mom was a little horrified, but uh, it is actually kind of neat where down here on the ground, I'm always sort of tucking it behind my ears, but up there, it has a life of its own. And when you turn your head, that whole head of hair goes with you. So it's not actually in your way, although it can really be in other people's way <laughs> if you have as much hair as I do. <laughs> now, you were honoring Yuri Gagarin with this flute duet with Ian Anderson. And Yuri Gagarin is the famous Russian cosmonaut. And it occurred to me there really is an international esprit de corps. I mean, you, you talked of him with great respect, like he was a, a hero. Anybody that leaves the planet has had a very special opportunity. And the first person to leave the planet, I think, must have been a pretty special guy. We we happened to be up there on my expedition on the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. And that's really just celebrating, I, I think, all the people who've already been and also the people that are going to go. Mm-hmm. Because this is something we can do now. It's a, it's something that humans can do, and it's uh, it's here to stay. And this is for humanity. This is not for America or Russia or Britain. It's for humanity. Don't you feel that way? I absolutely feel that way. And, you know, I think it makes a big difference in, in kind of a subtle way in that there's something fascinating and, and hopeful about people leaving the planet and going someplace else. And we don't even know exactly where they're going to go in the future. I mean, there's other planets out there. There's other right. places yeah. to go. And we're actively planning to go back to the moon to land on an asteroid and understand, you know, what living in outer space would be like to go back to Mars. Those are plans that are moving along, although we're in the kind of frustrating stage, I would say, of trying to make sure we've got all the pieces in place Mm -hmm. to make sure that when we get to wherever Mm -hmm. we're going, everybody's still doing okay. And those pieces are hard. I am taxpayer Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I spend a lot of my tax money sending Katie Coleman up into outer space. Is it worth it? 
I'm a scientist. That's the way I was trained. There's a lot of different things that we do up in space that we just plain old can't do down here. And it's because of that lack of gravity or maybe that lack of atmosphere. One of my favorite applications, because it pertains directly to me and a lot of people I know, is osteoporosis. Mm. When we go up there, we lose bone because we're not walking around on our feet and sending those messages to our brain about needing bone and building bone. We lose bone at about 10 times the rate of a woman who has osteoporosis who's 70 years old. So what she loses in a whole year, I lose in a month. If I'm not doing something to stop it. And so I'm part of a, a really interesting osteoporosis experiment to understand more about how we lose bone, how we keep bone, how we rebuild bone. And it, because it happens so fast to us, it makes us good subjects because it's really easy to measure in hmm. terms of samples and things. Wow. So I thought we got Tang and Velcro, but we actually get medical advances. Oh, absolutely. And even um, heart function. Our hearts don't have to work as hard to pump blood from our feet up to our heads because they're not working against gravity. And in some ways, they get kind of lazy and the muscle gets weaker. And Mm -hmm. it actually begins to resemble actually an older heart. And Mm. so I've done all sorts of, you know, 48-hour blood pressure and cardiac monitoring and all those things that one could wear, I have worn them. And it all, you know, adds up to lessons that we're not able to learn down here. Mm -hmm. But we're also learning the more physical experiments, things like combustion. Because things burn a little bit differently up there Mm -hmm. without that sort of Mm. hot air balloon effect, Mm. where those lighter gases would rise, things burn more slowly. And it allows us to study the process, something that we have to measure in like less than a second down here on Earth. We can actually measure over 30 or 40 seconds. So we're learning about pollution. We're learning about soot production, things like that. And we could go discipline by discipline, Mm -hmm. and there would be some unique experiment that we can do up there that we just can't do down here, Mm -hmm. and I love being up there to do them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Katie Coleman, who's an astronaut for NASA and has spent six months up in the space station. Katie, let's talk more about just being a human being up there. Just uh, what's it like eating? Is that, you know, there's a big part of travel. We travel to eat interesting stuff. How's the food up there? I tell people that Nobody I know goes for the food. (laughs) (laughs) And I went up there with an Italian guy, Paolo Nespoli, who's just wonderful. And I'd never been to Italy before I went to the space station and lived up there with him. And there was just something genuinely sad about Paolo, (laughs) about the food, where he would just look at this, like, mashed package of lasagna and just go, what? Yeah. And I didn't understand it till I went to Italy, and then I thought, oh, poor Paolo. <laughs> see, see, an English astronaut would have no problem with that. Just they kidding, might like the food kidding. a little better. <laughs> so but what, what's some uh, surprisingly tasty thing? I mean, I, I remember I went to a space thing here at uh, Boeing, and, and they had uh, some kind of dried ice cream that wasn't even cold or something. What, what, what's something fun that you eat? You know, we vote about the food, and the ice cream actually went away quite a while ago. Um, I would say it, the food is physically fun. So you can play with your food. Exactly. And I think that there's a there's a part of all of us that are small children that go up there. Yeah. But if you end up, you lose your grip on something or sometimes because it doesn't weigh anything, you forget you have it and you let go and you forget. And then suddenly that peanut butter sandwich that's open-faced is like just floating and... And then wherever it lands, that is where it's going to be, and then you're going to clean it up. Because sticky is still sticky without gravity. 
You know, you would not believe how far a little splurt of barbecue sauce can go. That opens up all sorts of problems. (laughs) So are some (laughs) astronauts uh, sloppier eaters than others? Somebody's well, got to clean I'm, up. Well, I'm a new tablecloth kind of person. My husband knows that after I've eaten dinner, we're going to need a new one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's this, a little worse, you know, I want to try this. That sounds so much fun. Now, when you're up there, what do you get homesick for when you're up there for a couple of months? Everybody's different. I think uh, your family just comes way before mm-hmm. anything else. You must have good Skype kind of connections and stuff with your loved ones. We work at it. You know, we mm-hmm. have a good Internet protocol phone. Mm-hmm. So I can talk to my family on the phone about 40 minutes every hour if I had enough time or they mm-hmm. had enough time to talk like that. My my son was 10 when I was up there. And, you know, when you're 10, you don't really want to talk to your mom like every day. Well, how are you? How are you? How's space? How's earth? I mean, after a little <laughs> while, he's like, you know, dad, you know, I've talked to her. Tell her I'm fine. <laughs> I love how space. I just find that so funny. <laughs> Hey, Katie, when you're up there and you're sleeping, is your sleep the same up there? Do you dream differently? Do you get a straight seven hours or do you take medicine to help you sleep? Everybody's different. I'm a great sleeper. I can sleep anywhere, standing up, laying down, or floating around the space station. So that's a special gift. If you have a lumpy mattress, it doesn't really matter. That's right. Do you just harness yourself or do you just kind of all float around? We each have a cabin, which I think it's really important to have a place Uh that is yours, that you can shut the door. They're very soundproof, which is nice. Mm -hmm. You can have a private conversation with your family, which I think is really, Mm -hmm. really nice. Most people have a sleeping bag where you it's like a thin blanket that you kind of climb into and your arms can stick out. And most people will attach that to the wall so that they don't float around. But I'm kind of small, and every once in a while I would just leave it unattached and wake up in the morning, and you really wouldn't know which way was up and which way was down. So you could close your door in your cabin, and you could just decide in a, in a fun-loving kind of way, I'm not going to tie myself in, and you could just float around all night while you sleep. Absolutely. Do you do that? Sometimes. And, and we dream. I, I would say most people I've talked to share this with me in that we dream in zero-G as well. Now, what does that mean? Meaning that when I think about going somewhere in my dream, I fly there. Oh. I don't walk. Walking's really awkward. Shoes are really awkward. Yeah. And so we kind of sort of give ourselves a push, and, and wherever you push yourself, there you go. And, and to me, it's like living in the world of Peter Pan. You get spoiled. And I just loved you it. You get back down here with us <laughs> mortals, and you got to actually move your feet. <laughs> now, what surprised you from the view of space? Do you ever find yourself just gazing out the window? What do you enjoy looking at? We look out the window, I'd say, as much as we have time for, which is never enough. On my very first space journey on the Space Shuttle Columbia, I was up there with a guy named Al Sacco from Massachusetts, and I'm from there as well. And we just happened to see Massachusetts for the very first time together, looking out the window. And he looked down and goes, oh, my gosh, it looks just like the map. (laughs) (laughs) It looks just like the map. Google Map, no, reality. We, we try to add to Google Map. On our mission alone, I think we took uh, 60,000 photos wow. in, that, in that six months. So we take a lot of photos of the Earth. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's really different about the space station now, and I think it's a very human thing, is that instead of having just these small windows that are portals mm-hmm. where you look down and ah. let's say you're in the Pacific and Hawaii is going to go by, if you're not looking in exactly the right place out that portal, mm. Hawaii is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ocean. But now we have what we call the cupola, 
Mm. And folks can see this on the web. You just go to the Gateway to Astronaut Photography, and on the top half there's photos, on the bottom half there's sort of stop-action video, and you'll see our view out that cupola where there's a sort of series of diagonal windows all the way around and then one giant one above your head. And so you can look and you can see, in my case, you know, Cape Cod is Mm. coming and then you're there and then it's leaving. And for me, it just gives me more of a feeling of of being present. So when I buy my first ticket, I'm going to make sure I get the class with the big windows. Yes. (laughs) Now, looking down at Earth, it looks like the map. When you look in the other direction, are the stars brighter? The stars seem deeper to me and a little bit disorienting because... They're more 3D, at least to me. and more 3D, yeah. And it depends. You know, we're going around the Earth every 90 minutes. Hmm. And so we're always looking in a different part of the night sky as well. So if you blink, it changes. Absolutely. So you have to kind of get those patterns memorized. Yeah. And, they, and they look a little bit different, you know, upside down. Like if you go to Australia and look up at the sky, it'll just mm-hmm. look familiar, <laughs> but at the same time different. So you see Orion's necktie instead of Orion's belt. <laughs> I didn't check, but next time I will. Check that out. And do you stargaze differently when you're back down on Earth? I would say I stargaze more wistfully. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Katie Coleman, and Katie's one of our astronauts. She works for NASA. She works for us. She's out there helping us get comfortable with space. It's a multinational effort and making lots of scientific progress. Uh, At the same time, we've been learning about what it's like to be up there. Katie, are there tasks that you take for granted on Earth that are especially complicated when you get up into zero gravity? There's some really simple ones that are hard, and that is unpacking anything, moving anything. It's like thinking about open your suitcase. What if everything floated out? It's like hurting cats, weightless ones. But one thing I don't think we talked about yet, Rick, was the space station itself, we talked about a lot about the capsule and how small that is. It's like that smart car. But then the secret that we keep from everybody on the Earth is that the space station is enormous. I don't envision it as enormous. Take me on a walk through the space station. Well, it's first it's hard to walk, so we have to fly, which is a little scary at Hold first. My hand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually when the when the when new people first get up there. They're, they're sort of clumsy, and they're grabbing. You can only walk with your hands, really, so you're sort of grabbing all the things that you would hold on to and gripping yourself around yeah. the space station, and then you learn to, to fly. But often we kind of jump off that cliff a little bit too soon, and the new guys come flying through the lab, and they knock everything off the walls. <laughs> it's Velcroed, and the experienced people are catching stuff right and left and putting it back on the walls, and then the, the new guys land at your feet looking like, you know, like new puppies that are just so excited. They're like, oh, look at this. Isn't this cool? <laughs> and you probably, the old timers roll their eyes and go, yeah, we, we got over that six weeks ago. <laughs> you know, actually, that is where I, I never, I don't think any of us ever get over it because the flying is magical. Yeah. And so if we, if we start off, we could start off in the place where the shuttle would usually dock. And so you come in this hatch, if you came up in a shuttle, come in this hatch, and this is a series of train cars that are stuck together like with hatches. So they're big. It's like train cars without the seats or buses without the seats. So there's a lot of space. And in fact, you can get a little bit stuck in the middle because there's nothing to hold on to. Oh, so like a sailboat that's stuck in irons with no wind. Exactly. So if you have no momentum and nothing to hold on to, can you paddle or or you just sit there? Paddling doesn't really quite work, but 
you really always have some sort of little bit of momentum. And actually, something it takes a while to get good at is to let go of something without imparting, you know, some kind of force yeah. on it. So we come in the hatch as if we came off the space shuttle. And to your right is going to be a sort of train car that is the Japanese module. And to your left is going to be the European module. And straight in front of us is going to be our, our four cabins that are one is to the left, one's to the right, one's on the floor, one's on the ceiling. So it's a little ring of cabins. And then we're going to fly forward into the U.S. laboratory where we do a lot of the experiments, although we also do a lot of them in the Japanese and European modules as well. And then we're going to come into what we call node one. So node two is where we entered, and that's where things are attached. A node is a place where a bunch of modules are stuck together. Uh And now we're in node one, and on one side is the airlock, where if we're going to do a spacewalk, we'd put on our spacesuits. And so in node one, this is where we eat. So we've got the kitchen table, which isn't horizontal. It's actually like at a diagonal on its way down. And this is my crewmate, Paolo Nespoli's brilliant uh, sort of discovery was that all of us used to fly from the lab to the Russian segment. And often we'd sort of like bonk our hip on the way by the kitchen table. It was just in the way. And Paolo said, you know, nothing on there is going to stay in one place anyway. Going to have to Velcro it or duct tape it or something or bungee cord it to the table. So let's just move the table down just a little bit. Now it's kind of like an easel. Mm. And it's still a place that we can all gather around and be together and feel like we're eating a meal together, but we're not going to hurt ourselves as we fly by. (laughs) But then if you take a right, you're going to go to the place where a lot of really important things happen. The first one is the treadmill. So this is one of the things that we exercise on. And so somebody would actually be coming horizontally out of the wall, running on the treadmill, and you can just sort of weave your way around them. Then you're going to be looking at the bathroom a very necessary place. And I think that whenever any of us travel anywhere, you always want to have to be able to be comfortable Good about those bathroom, things. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and that's actually pretty pretty fun stuff as well. And and not as exciting as people I think it might be. And and that's good that it's not exciting. We like that to be boring. Right. But there is if I won't I won't ask you to get into all the details, but there are effective ways that you can go to the bathroom and, and not have terrible stuff floating all over. Absolutely. I mean, I tell the kids not to try this at home, but basically we have like a vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's okay? nice. Good. And you really don't want to try that at home because ours is very special. But, you know, and I'm always pretty graphic because, yeah. you know, I have kids. <laughs> Thank you for the tour of the space station. You've shared with just me, nobody else, the secret that it's a lot bigger than people realize. It's giant. It's a, it's a really special place. I bet you look forward to going back up there. It was hard to leave. I would yeah. have stayed another six months in a minute. Oh, man. I mean, it's a magical place. It takes a little while to get good at doing things up there. Once you go back up, do you snap right back in it, or do you have a few days of adjustment? I think mentally we learn that we just make an adjustment. I think it still takes a little time, and actually many people are sick at first. We, we've all had our times mm-hmm. of being sick or not being sick. What kind of sick? Um, Is that a nausea because of the weightlessness, or, or what kind of sick yeah, would you be? Yeah, kind of nauseous, just because... It really does a number on your middle ear. You know, when you kind of give yourself a push and fly across the space station, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that really tells your middle ear that you started. But then when you stop, it says, well, she stopped, Mm. but she never started. How did that happen? This is Travel with Rick Steves, who've been traveling through space with astronaut Katie Coleman. Katie, what's next for NASA? What are you working on? And and, and what's your vision for our space program, just to wrap things up? In the immediate future for NASA, we're taking some of the things that we know how to do. We know how to send people and stuff to low Earth orbit. And we have a space station there that goes around our Earth every 90 minutes. 
And we know how to do that. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean we take it casually. But it's the time to sort of transfer that work to our commercial partners, to companies that can build spacecraft in a less expensive and more flexible way than our government organization. And so that we're doing that transition, and I myself am working with some of those companies, helping to make sure that we all understand, you know, how things are going to be used once they get to, to space and that people actually capture these things with our robotic arm up there. Mm. So that's the immediate future, but the beyond that future is happening right now as well. And that is that we are using the places that we can get to, that we can target, and those are asteroids and the moon and eventually Mars. And we're thinking, what do we need to go to those places? And what, what's the technology? How much do we need to be able to recycle air and water? What do people need to bring with them? How do we keep people healthy? Make sure when they get to Mars, they can walk around and they're not just spaghetti people. <laughs> so we're learning all those, all those small steps need to be taken. So we're targeting those further destinations and at the same time taking the steps to build a spacecraft that could launch from the U.S. that will bring us to the space station, but also to asteroids, to the moon, and eventually on to Mars. Wow. Katie Coleman, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's fun to be talking with fellow travelers. Fellow travelers, I like that. Happy travels, with or without gravity. <laughs> thank you. We're looking forward to having some of your travelers come up there, too. All right. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com. <laughs>